thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists with Kat Arney. Hello, Kat. Hello. With Dave Ansell. Hi, Dave. Hi, Chris. And also with me, Chris Smith. Now, coming up, how storms can trigger earthquakes. Indeed, scientists in Taiwan have shown how how typhoons can make the Earth move. Also, why scientists think that a star near Earth could be about to explode. So we'll have cosmic equivalents of ringside seats to see a supernova. And also, how scientists have made a breakthrough in understanding how Huntington's disease can damage nerve cells and we'll be finding out how in just a second. Kat. Thanks Chris. Also this week it's our science question and answer show. We have got an inbox bulging with your questions including what's happening when our eyes get used to the dark? How do you decaffeinate coffee? And this is one absolutely brilliant. How can I boil the water in my fish bowl without hurting my fish in it? Uh, and remember we're always looking for quality science questions here at The Naked Scientist so please do send them in to chris at thenakedscientist.com. Dave. Thanks, Kat. And if you're feeling experimental in this week's kitchen science, I've got a challenge for you. I'll be showing you a cunning trick with some spaghetti. It's really simple. You don't even need to cook it or eat it. All you need is a single piece of spaghetti, and I'll tell you what to do with it shortly. Thank you very much, David. It's not painful, I promise you. That's all on the way, and if you have any science questions for us, you can send them in. Our email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. This week, scientists have made an interesting discovery that they think that typhoons, these are big storms, could trigger earthquakes. There's a paper in Nature this week. This is Chi Ching Lu and uh, two researchers in the US, Alan Lind and Selwyn Sachs. And they've been working in Taiwan because Chi Ching Lu is at the Academica Sinica in Taiwan. And Taiwan is an extraordinary place when it comes to geology because the Philippines plate is marching into the Eurasian plate and the two are coming together at eight centimetres a year. So if you imagine if you had your house on that, uh, you'd potentially be seeing your garden disappear at the rate of eight centimetres a year. So it's really quite dramatic. But what they're very interested in is what happens when storms arrive. What they did was to put some strain gauges, these are very, very sensitive ground stretch measuring devices, down boreholes 200 metres underground, and they started to measure how the ground was moving. But what was really surprising was they they realised quite quickly that they could detect the arrival of typhoons, big storms that came in over the land. And what this did was to make differences on the amount of strain they could pick up. Now, why should that happen? Well, when a storm comes, obviously it's associated with very low pressure. So when the pressure drops, the ground swells up. So they thought, well, that's obvious, we can explain that. So why is it then that on a number of occasions we saw not the ground swelling up, but for some reason the ground shrank? Why should that happen? And the only explanation they can come up with, looking at the profiles, if you you look in the paper, I mean, there are all these very, very characteristic profiles which fit with the ground changing very dramatically whenever these storms come. They think that this is a slow earthquake. 
And what a slow earthquake is, is rather than an abrupt, very short duration of lots of energy being released and lots of shaking, a slow earthquake is where the movement happens a bit gently, indolently, over hours to days. And so what's happening is that the storm comes in, the ground swells under the storm because the pressure is low, but because the sea doesn't change the pressure on the seabed because when you have low pressure all that happens is more water comes in and adds to the height of the sea so the pressure on the seabed stays the same the effect is to stretch open the fault on land this makes the fault slip so you have this slow earthquake phenomenon and that's why you see the association between the storm and the earthquake and they actually say that these slow earthquakes could be protecting taiwan from much more serious earthquakes because they're basically letting out the energy gently and slowly so that instead of getting lots of energy built up over many years and then suddenly going very dramatically you just get this gentle indolent nudge every so often which just keeps things ticking over and it and that's why despite this very dramatic plate movement of eight centimeters a year you don't get earthquakes it seems crazy that something like a weather system could actually affect tectonic plates. Are there any other examples where that, that's happening, or is this the first time that they've found that the weather can affect plate tectonics? This is why it's a paper in Nature this week, because no-one had realised that actually you can trigger this species of earthquake, this type of tectonic activity, by the weather. So, yes, but you have to remember, these storms are moving massive amounts of air, weighing huge amounts in terms of the amount of pressure they're applying to the ground or not applying when the storm comes in. So I'm not altogether surprised. It's just that we hadn't really spotted it before. Very elegant. And it's not actually creating the earthquake. It's just triggering. It's something which would have happened anyway, just not necessarily yeah. on that day. Basically, the fault is primed to go, and it's the straw that's breaking the camel's back, yeah. OK, now, Beetlejuice, as well as being a classic film, is one of the brightest stars in the sky. It's Orion's right, hand sh right shoulder, and it's one of the largest stars we know of. It's a red supergiant with a mass about 20 times larger than the sun and a radius about 1,000 times larger than the sun. So if it was sitting in the solar system, it would actually fill up the whole of the solar system out to Jupiter's orbit. Now, this week, Charles Towns from Berkeley, California, has announced something quite interesting. The radius has shrunk by about 15% over 15 years um, and it seems that this contraction is actually getting faster now this might seem a bit so you mean the star is actually shrinking the star is shrinking the outer layers of the star are shrinking but would it normally do the opposite then would, would you expect as a star ages for it to swell up or at least stay roughly the same well this kind of star is actually quite interesting it's actually it's an incredibly fast burning star it's only about eight or nine million years old and it's already in the final stages of its life the sun for example is about five billion years old and basically, it's so big, it's about 20 times heavier than the sun, that it's compressed it's, all the gas in it really, really high to high pressures. And the higher the pressure, the higher the temperature, the faster it reacts. So it's already burnt all of its hydrogen. It might, what it's burning now, they're not quite sure. But what happens to these stars? First off, they burn hydrogen, then they, then they kind of, the core collapses, blows the outside out into this huge red giant. And the core then starts burning helium. Then they can start burning carbon, neon, oxygen, and then silicon. And eventually, if, if this contraction is something to do with it finishing burning silicon, um, but burning to silicon, um, there's no more reactions that can go on. And eventually, there's nothing to have left. So the core collapses and collapses and collapses until it turns into essentially a huge atomic nucleus. It turns into a neutron star. And this releases an immense amount of energy, about 20% of its rest mass. So immense amounts. This creates a supernova and just blows the whole star to pieces. When this happens on the other side of the universe, we have various satellites and telescopes designed to spot these things, gamma ray bursts and, and X-ray flashes. Yeah. 
they're incredibly intense and incredibly bright, even over those vast distances. This star's not very far away, so what would be the consequence for us then? It's about 600 light years away, so it's not it's close, but not that close. So it shouldn't actually be very dangerous to us, but it sh- if it did go supernova, there's no... I mean, it has lots of stages, it might it expands and contracts lots of times, but if it did go supernova, it'd be brighter than the moon. Uh, for for how long? The full moon, uh, for a couple, and you'd be able to see it during the day for a couple of months. So, and That's then amazing. The, Orion wouldn't have a right-hand shoulder anymore. Oh dear. But uh, obviously there'll be no problem spotting it, but um, this will obviously offer astronomers an unprecedented view of this kind of process, presumably, because we normally have to look miles away and often we catch them after they've already happened. So this would be amazing if this actually happened. Yeah, if it did happen. Um, they've never actually watched a star in all the um, sort of precursors of a supernova, which is why they have actually don't know whether this one's going to go off at the moment. So because they, they always see them after they go bang, they suddenly get really exciting and really big, but they haven't been watching it because there's billions of stars in the sky and they can't watch them all. Terrific. So, so if it did, November the 5th might come early for Betelgeuse. <laughs> you never know. Cat. It's quite a terrifying thought. Um, uh, from the the height of the stars down to the human body. And uh, there's a new paper in Nature Neuroscience this week about Huntington's disease. Now, this is a, a degenerative disease of the nervous system, and it normally sets in when a person's in their 30s or their 40s. But they don't show any signs of disease until that age. Now, over a decade ago, uh, researchers did discover that sufferers do have a fault in a specific gene, and it makes a protein called Huntington. But what's not clear is if you have this faulty protein... Why don't you get the effects of the disease from birth or from early in your life, uh, except it, it comes on later in life? It's a great mystery. And so um, researchers at the University of Illinois wanted to answer this question and a team led by Scott Brady may have discovered how Huntington actually wrecks its its havoc on the nervous system. Now, what they did is that they discovered that the faulty version of Huntington, this protein that's found in in patients, it switches on an enzyme called JNK3. It's only switched on in nerve cells. Now, if there's uh, faulty Huntington, this activation of this protein blocks transport in nerve cells. Now, this is really bad news because nerve cells are very, very long cells. They have a cell body, and then they have long fibres that go out through your body and take the messages to your limbs, you know, from your brain down to your toes. And the faulty protein essentially stops nerve cells from shuttling proteins down these long nerve fibres, which obviously spells pretty bad news for nerve function. Um, So that it causes eventually the lack of function in the nerves, causes the cells to die off and leads to Huntington's disease. So, uh, given that they've found that, I mean, the big question that everyone's going to be asking is, okay, so you've identified one mechanism for the people who carry that gene and are are therefore potentially destined to get Huntington's disease, what can we do about it? Well, it's a really interesting one. And for a start, it explains why the symptoms of Huntington's only come on later in life, because they think that basically when you're younger, your nerves can kind of cope with being a bit broken (laughs) with this transport mechanism not working properly but as you get older and your nerves sort of get a bit old and knackered really the fact that they have this fault in transport means that you start to get these symptoms and nerves dying off and once they start dying off and they they start having this lack of transport they're much more likely to die off Um, and also what's interesting is that they think that this may be linked to other neurodegenerative diseases things like Alzheimer's um, and other kind of diseases where the nerves start to die off. Um, So at the moment, you know, this is a very early discovery, but could potentially lead to some treatments for not only Huntington's, but other kinds of neurodegenerative diseases as well, if we can find out 
what's the problem with the shuttling system and how maybe we can reactivate it or keep it going, then you could either treat or, or maybe even prevent the onset of the disease in the first place. Yeah, indeed, very important, especially given that we think we have an ageing population and potentially uh, about one person in five over the age of 80 can get Alzheimer's disease. So if the same goes for that as goes for Huntington's disease, then obviously this could be very important. Mm, Thank you, Kat. Absolutely. Now from brain diseases to uh, something else entirely, which is the question of plant helicopters. Now, have you seen those wonderful things that sycamore trees, maples, um, hornbeams, when they make their seeds, they produce those little things which they flutter down and they whirl down like a helicopter, helicopter don't they? Yeah, yeah, we used to collect them when we were kids and like flick them around. Well, the tree obviously does that because they remain airborne for a period of time. They can get blown by the wind and this can carry the seeds away from the parent tree and that's beneficial because it's a way of dispersing your seeds. If you get your seeds as far from the parent tree as possible, then you have a tree not competing with its parent for nutrients and light, moisture, that kind of thing. So that's obvious. But the key question is, why, when you do measurements, do these helicopter seeds stay in the air for much longer than they should? That was the question that was bothering a couple of researchers, David Lentink and uh, Michael Dickinson. They're two researchers in America. Uh, David Lentink's from uh, Holland, but he's actually working in Harvard at the moment, and Michael Dickinson's based in Caltech. So they've and basically been flicking these helicopter seeds around in the lab. Yes, they have, and, and very elegantly too. Uh, they got a paper in Science this week uh, to answer this very question. They actually started by making a model of these seeds because the best way to do science is to make a complicated structure into something simple where you can control the parameters. You make a model of it where you eliminate all the variables and just focus on what you think is going on and you identify, therefore, what's going on. So they made a sort of robot. Well, they had a robot which was used to study how insect wings fly. So they thought, let's modify this and let's turn this into a model of these helicopter seeds to see how they work. And this, they've actually got the robot working and it solved the problem for them. And Michael Dickinson explained to me a little bit about it earlier this week. So what we did is reconfigure this robotic insect that we have here at Caltech called Robofly. So Robofly... Um, is, a, is a large scaled insect that flaps its wings back and forth in a giant vat of mineral oil. And, and what we did was reconfigure this robot so that the wings twirled around through the oil just as a maple seed does as it twirls to the ground. And we could measure the forces created by this model seed as well as, as visualize the movement of fluid um, created by the, the moving seed. And what they basically found when they did this was that the flow of air, in this case they visualised that by using oil to study where the oil went, but that means the same for air, was exactly the same in these seeds as the way in which insects fly. One of the secrets of insect flight is that as the insect sweeps its wing back and forth, it, it does it at what an aerodynamicist would say, a very high angle of attack. And as it sweeps through the air, it actually creates a little tornado-like sort of swirling vortex along the front edge of the wing or the leading edge of, of the wing. But it's basically, imagine a tornado that's sort of fallen on its side. And it's the low pressure that's created by that swirling vortex that is able to allow the insect to create the forces that it needs to stay in the air. So basically... These trees are doing exactly the same as an insect's wing. They create these little miniature tornadoes. If you look at the paper here, can you see this beautiful whirlwind 
effect on the side of the uh, wing. This is actually done in a wind tunnel. So they also did some experiments with real seeds and a wind tunnel to demonstrate the effect. And basically, this is a beautiful example of convergent evolution. The, the insect has arrived via evolution at a way to make this happen by making these low-pressure areas on the side of its wing, and so have the trees. Isn't that incredible? So thank you very much to David Lentink and uh, Michael Dickinson, who explained that to me this week. Dave. Very neat. Now, if you're an archaeologist and you look at a site, what's the first thing you want to know about it? Basically, how old it is, presumably. Yeah, right. After that, is it going to be worth millions? Possibly in the back of your mind is how old it is. Now, there's various ways of, of doing that so far. One of the biggest ones they use is carbon-14 dating. The problem is that only works if you've got some carbon, something organic in the material you're trying to date. And organic things get eaten by bugs. They disappear. So you don't always find it. So there's lots and lots of archaeological sites which are very, very difficult to date. Now, one of the most common things you do find on archaeological sites is pottery. It's dirt cheap. Um, you can't recycle it. People, It's essentially disposable. It's been disposable for tens of thousands of years. People smash it. They just throw it in a pit. So if you've got some way of dating pottery, that would be ideal for archaeologists. Now, um, archaeologists, no one's been able to do that so far, but have a, Moira Wilson and colleagues may have come up with a solution. When you make pottery, you fire it. You heat the clay up to a temperature between 1,000 and 1,400 Celsius, which sinters it, causing the particles of the clay to stick together. And crucially, it drives the water out of some of those minerals which make up the clay. As soon as the clay cools down, a very slow reaction between these minerals and water starts. Now, it's easy to measure the amount of water in a pot. Just dry out the pot normally um, to get rid of the water amongst the grains and then cook it for six, at about 600 degrees centigrade for a few hours and you measure the difference in weight. Different pottery takes up water at different rates, but the rate at which it starts taking up water for a couple of days after you've just dried it out predicts how it would have taken up water for the next couple of hundred years very accurately. And crucially, as Moira told us... The reaction is sustained by an incredibly small quantity of water, so there's, there's actually sufficient moisture in the atmosphere to keep the reaction going. So it doesn't actually matter whether your brick is, is sitting on the table or it's sitting at the bottom of a lake. As long as there's enough water there to sustain the reaction, any excess water, for example if the material is saturated, doesn't contribute to the reaction, it just sits there doing nothing. In fact, the only thing which does affect, affect this rate of uptake of water seems to be the temperature, which is going to be reasonably constant over, say, southern Britain or somewhere. So you can calibrate against that by getting a load of pots you know the age of, and you can make remarkably accurate predictions. So this is a much better way of doing things, potentially, than carbon dating, which has a number of problems associated with it. This is actually very, very easy. It seems to work. They've dated various bricks. They've dated a Roman brick, which is 2,000 years old, some um, King Charles sort of um, area. They did have one problem with medieval brick from Canterbury, which they kept dating at 60 years old, and it really confused them. So they worked out that there'd been a fire during the Second World War, which had refired the pot or the brick. And, and reset the, the timeline. Reset the time clock. But so, of course, that's always going to be potentially a problem, I suppose, yeah, isn't it? With any system like this. Brilliant. Ingenious, though. Thank you, Dave, for that. Now, also this week, scientists have come up with a way, uh, a reason for you to tear up that periodic table which is sitting on the wall of your classroom or perhaps in your chemistry laboratory and replace it with a new one and that's because we've got a new element to add to it and here to tell us about that new element is someone who occasionally contributes to the naked scientists she's also a bbc science reporter and that's victoria gill so why have we got this new element victoria well, this is element 112, or ununbium, um, called that because its atomic mass, the mass of its nucleus, is 
um, 112. And it was discovered by Professor Sigurd Hoffman um, in 1996, actually. But it was such a, a sort of tricky experiment to replicate that it's taken all of this time for the International Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry, which is the official maker and formulator of our ubiquitous and wonderful periodic table, to recognise it and credit Hoffman and his team at the Centre for Heavy Iron Research in, in Darmstadt in Germany with its discovery. Um, How did they actually make the new element, Victoria? So they're using a particle accelerator and, and they're essentially firing a, a beam of ions at a, at a target and fusing two nuclei together. Um, this is a very tricky thing to do when you get to the, the very heavy elements of the periodic table because these fusion reactions require a lot of energy. And to create element 112 or anunbium as it's temporarily been known, they fired a beam of, of charged zinc atoms or zinc ions at lead atoms in the hope that some of them would fuse together and, and form a new element and so they did. And what's very tricky about this is that these elements are very unstable. As soon as they form, they actually just start to fall apart. The, the nuclei start to just emit energy. But that's quite useful because you can detect the energy that they're emitting and use that to estimate the size of the nucleus so you can tell that you have a new element. But these fusion reactions don't happen very often. You have to fire this beam at these lead atoms for a very long time and you only get a few successful fusion reactions. In 1996, they only created or saw one atom of element 112. But other teams have had to replicate those experiments in order that IUPAC, the, the society that draws up our periodic table, can recognise that discovery and say, yes, this is officially a new element and we will add it to your periodic table. So that's hardly a massive amount of money in the bank in terms of this four atoms in the last 12 years. But where on the periodic table would we put this if we were to, to add the, the square today? Where would we be adding this? Well, it's a metal. It would go underneath mercury on the periodic table. That's where its square would be. And in actual fact, because it's been around for, for so long, because we've known about it for so long, other teams have done some experiments on it to find that its properties are very similar to that group and it fits quite nicely into that group. Given that it hangs around for such a short space of time, I mean, looking at the half-lives of some of the isotopes of element number 112, uh, we're talking less than half a minute. Why is this useful? Well, this is about really finding out sort of how atoms work and how matter works. And in actual fact, what Professor Hoffman's team are doing in the longer term is looking for what they've referred to as the island of stability. So they think there's a whole new class of elements which have electron shells much further out that are full, which will be able to hang around for a lot longer. So you're, you're dealing with whole new groups of elements and matter that behaves in a completely different way. And given, as you say, that they think there might be the prospects of getting very big elements built the same way, but way beyond the size of this one, could this therefore be used as something like a stepping stone? So you could build some of this and then very quickly add some more to it to get you into the realms of those very big atoms that might have all these exciting properties. That's right, because... If, as we're seeing, atoms behave and, and are built in the way that we would expect and these fusion reactions are working in the way that we would expect, then we can sort of incrementally build these experiments to carry out new fusion reactions and build atoms in exactly the same way. We just need bigger particle accelerators, better equipment, and we can get there in the end. It's all, it's all just sort of stepping stones, as you say. Thank you very much, Victoria. That's Victoria Gill. Um, she was explaining how the International Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry, also known as IUPAC for short, have confirmed the existence this week of a brand new element. It was actually developed in the 1990s, of course, but had to be proved to exist. And they've given it the exciting name of anumbium temporarily. That's un, un, and by in Latin, anumbium. But I'm told that IUPAC 
They're going to be considering a new name for it to give it its official name in the next few weeks. They will listen to what the general public think too. So if you've got a name, you think that this element should have a certain name, tell us what you think and also tell IUPAC as well. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. You are listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, Katani, Dave Ansel. I think the new element should be called Katarnium. I think that'd be brilliant. Anyway, After you... the country, Qatar. What a, why, yes. why is that? Yeah, well, you know, it's a nice country. I'm just joking. Mike Butcher is in Galston. Hello, Mike. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. I'm in Galston. Galston, sorry, I, I meant that. I meant that's what I. That's what I meant. Anyway, welcome to the Naked Scientist. How can we help you? Thank you. Well, I have a question for you. Uh, when the plug is taken out of a sink full of water, the water goes down, goes down the plug hole, and the vortex is in an anti-clockwise direction. I emailed a friend of mine in Australia and asked him to check, and he tells me that, that the vortex goes in a clockwise direction. Can you explain why? Okay, this is an effect which theoretically would work in certain circumstances. Um, It definitely works with um, big weather systems, so low-pressure areas. Essentially, if you've got a low-pressure area or anything which is sucking um, liquid in um, from a long way away, the stuff which is to the north, because the Earth has a smaller radius out there, is moving, uh, is going around the Earth once a day, but it's not going very fast. So it's not moving very fast. But the stuff near the equator, the, radi- the Earth's radius, is, you're further away from the axis of the Earth. So the distance you travel every day is further, so you're traveling, so it's traveling faster. If you then suck this stuff in towards the central point, the stuff which is going faster will overtake, the stuff from the south will overtake the stuff from the north, and it'll sort of start to spin round into the centre. And so it spins. Now, this is an effect which does happen. Um, cyclones go anti-clockwise in the northern hemisphere and clockwise in the southern hemisphere. But when you start talking about um, basins and emptying basins and sinks, um, the problem is that this effect is there, but it's absolutely microscopic. It's tiny. People have measured it, though, haven't they? People have measured it, yes. Some Americans did basically make a huge bath um, several metres across. They put a little bit of water in it. They left it to sit for a fortnight. And then they pulled the plug out in a very um, controlled manner. And then, if you do that, it will. Uh, it does. It does always go down anti-clockwise in the northern hemisphere. The problem is, in a normal sink, it's much more affected by which tap you use to turn it on, how you moved your hands in it within the network, within hours before you left it to pull the plug out, and exactly how you pull the plug out. And so, it's. If you, we did this experiment on Naked Scientist a while ago, and we found it was essentially random in both northern and southern hemispheres. You mentioned about sort of cyclones going different ways. What happens if a cyclone? moves across the equator um, does it suddenly stop and start going the other way they they, they, they generally they'll sort of slow down and I don't, I don't think they normally do I've never it seen any it wouldn't be energetically favourable yeah. probably for it to do so that it just would, wouldn't do it it'd grow into not. a halt yeah. crazy I hope that uh, answers your question for you. Anyway, Mike, it was a great question, very important. And the, the references from memory uh, for people doing that uh, bathtub water spinning experiment, I think they were published in Nature in the 1950s. I can't remember the dates, but it was definitely Shapiro et al. who did it in America and Trefethen et al. who did it in Sydney, Australia. So they showed the effects were converse in the two different hemispheres. But fantastic. Thank you very much. Great question. Stephen's actually in New Jersey. Hello, Stephen. What would you like to talk about? I'd like to ask you a question about drinking. Uh, if you're drinking a milkshake or any other drink with a straw, when you finish, you can use your lungs to suck up all the last bits through the straw. It doesn't matter how hard you suck. Why don't we choke? 
Okay, I have done extensive research into this question myself uh, <laughs> last night with some rum-based cocktails. So um, this is. Does it have to be rum, or can it be anything? Uh, any, anything would work. Yes, but I like um, margaritas, but you can't really drink them through a straw. And I will be publishing my results in the Journal of Inebriology very soon. But um, basically, the reason is is that when you're drinking a drink that's a, a full drink, you create a vacuum in your mouth. And that's basically what forces the liquid up the straw is you're not really kind of sucking it up. You're actually dropping the pressure in your mouth um, and that causes the liquid to go up the straw. What happens when you get right down to the bottom of your drink is that there's really very little liquid there. So for a start, there's not really a lot of liquid that's going to go up into your lungs, even if it was to get there. Um, the other thing is, is that fluid is a lot heavier than air um, and when you actually do the motion of sucking something up from the bottom of your, your cocktail glass or your milkshake, you kind of form a little barrier at the back of your throat with uh, like soft palate and things like that. So the dregs of fluid come up the straw, they get into your mouth, they kind of go pleh, flop into your mouth while the air How goes... How go again? <laughs> Just checking. That's the scientific term, I think you'll find. They sort of go pleh into your mouth. They don't really make it to the back of your throat to go down your lungs. But if you are a clumsy or over-enthusiastic drinker, it is actually possible to inhale fluid into your lungs up a straw. Uh, but most of us have kind of learnt how to drink, so we don't do it. Fantastic. Uh, can I just ask you, Stephen, you, you don't sound, don't take this the wrong way, as an, a native of New Jersey. No, I'm pleased to say. <laughs> oh, you just upset half of our audience. I'm just joking. <laughs> so what, what are you doing in New Jersey? Uh, I work in uh, drug development and manufacture, and uh, my job was closed down in England, and an opportunity came up in the United States within my same company, so I relocated in 2003. And took and the naked scientist with you via the internet, presumably? Yeah, the radio over here is rubbish, so I've been listening to a lot of podcasts. Fantastic. Well, it's great to have your company, and thanks for a good question, too. Are you, comfortably, you. Are you going to comfortably quaff your cocktail from now on, safe in the knowledge you won't be inhaling any of it? <laughs> I'll have to try a few more, yes. Brilliant. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. It's The Naked Scientist with Chris, Dave and with Kat. It's our science Q&A show. We're answering your science questions for you. If you have any science questions for us, email chris at thenakedscientist.com. Dave. Um, I've also got a question here for you, Chris, um, from Niraja Raghavan, who says, how can I boil water without killing the fish inside it? <laughs> I love that question. What is he doing? So basically he's got a fish bowl. He's, he's apparently he's got a live fish swimming in, in his a fish bowl, bowl. And he wants to, to boil, boil the water, water without harming the fish. Well, thinking about it, I mean, what, what do we know about the boiling point of water? You can make water boil by raising the temperature that gives the water molecules more energy so they can escape from the body of water against the force being applied to the water surface by atmospheric pressure you can also make water boil at the same temperature by reducing the pressure above the water so i suppose if he put the fish bowl into a very large space that he could evacuate very abruptly so in other words take all of the air out so the fish bowl was sitting in a vacuum the water would boil without getting hot and therefore wouldn't harm the fish through heat the problem is that all the dissolved gases would presumably also boil out instantly, so the fish would asphyxiate very quickly unless you did it transiently, just quickly made it boil and then stopped again, just as a party trick to prove that this was possible. And I guess the other problem is if the water is boiling in the, around the fish, even if it's not damaging the proteins because it's not hot, the fish is also probably going to get the bends and any water or gases, I guess fish have... Indeed, because fish have a swim bladder, don't they, which is how they regulate their buoyancy. It's like a diver's BCD, which makes them buoyant 
neutral buoyancy in the water. So if, if you had a fish that had a swim bladder, it could explode, I presume, under those circumstances. And even if you had a, a little shark or something which didn't, then it's going to get the bend, so it's probably not going to be a happy fish. Horrible people. But it may not die straight away. So there you go, There's a, the, uh, there is the solution to your problem. And Chris, I've got a question here for you from Rowan Jennian, who wants to know why your eyes take so long to adjust to the dark, and also why her dog seems to be able to run out in what seems like pitch black to her, and just without any trouble start charging around the place if it was daylight. Well, two important questions there. First of all, getting used to the dark. Well, I have to thank John Gamble for this, who is an ophthalmologist over in America, and he sent me some ideas. Um, One of the most important points with eyes getting used to the dark is actually how your eyes see in the first place, which is that when you're looking at something, there are beams or rays of light of certain wavelengths or colours coming into your eye, and they interact with a photopigment, a chemical which is sensitive to certain wavelengths, which is in your retina. When the light waves hit that pigment, they cause the pigment to change its configuration. It uh, is so-called bleached. And when it changes its configuration, it then signals the cell to change its behaviour. So that's basically how the retina turns light waves into brain waves. It's turning the information into pulses of nerve activity the brain can understand. But for a period of time, when that pigment has been bleached, it can't respond to light again until it's regenerated, until its shape goes back to its original starting conformation. So when you go from a very light area where, on average, many of your pigment molecules in your retina will be being bleached out at any given time, and then you go into the dark, many of those bleached pigment molecules will slowly turn back into unbleached pigment molecules. They're sensitive again. So in other words, the longer you spend in the dark, the more pigment molecules become sensitive, and therefore the more sensitive your eyes become. That's the first point. The second one is that also the retina is a very dynamic electrical organ. There are two different ways in which the retina responds to light. There are cone cells which are not very sensitive to light. They need a lot of light to activate them, but they see in colour. And then there are the rod cells which are very sensitive to light, but they can only see in black and white. And what the eye can do is at low light conditions, you can connect via an electrical coupling called a gap junction some rod cells to the cone cells. And what this means is that the rod cells trigger the cones at a lower amount of light than they otherwise would need to turn them on. And so as a result, you can actually see in colour at much lower light than you would otherwise. And it takes a little while for these gap junction connections between the different classes of rods and cones to actually get activated. So there's also that process of adaptation. Now, in terms of what happens when your dog goes out into the dark, the reason dogs can see so well at night is because, in common with many animals that are nocturnally active... Dogs have a structure at the back of their eye called a tapetum lucidum, which is Latin for bright carpet. And if you look at the back of a dog's eye, also sheep have this, cows have this, horses have this, the back of the eye is very, very reflective and shiny. And this means that any light that comes into the eye that misses the retina the first time can bounce off the back of the eye and back onto the retina. The benefit then is that it makes the eye much more sensitive to light, but slightly less able to pinpoint precisely where the light's coming from. So there's a small loss of acuity, which is comes at the cost of increased sensitivity. So that's basically how your dog can see much better in the dark than you can. So is this tapetum lucidum the reason why if you shine a light at a dog's eyes, they light bright up so brightly? Spot on. Um, when you shine light into a person, and you see this when you do flash photography and you see red eye, the human retina looks red to the camera because the light illuminates the very dense, rich blood supply at the back of the eye because the eye has, and the retina has, one of the highest metabolic rates of all the tissues in the whole body. 
But in a dog or one of these other animals, because the back of the eye has this tapetum lucidum, this bright carpet, the light that goes into the eye immediately turns round and bounces straight back out again in that very demonic way. And it's because it's like reflecting off the back of the eye that makes your dog's eyes look very bright, but the same thing doesn't happen with a human. And also I think the lens focuses the light straight back the way it came, so all the light which you shone into the eye comes straight back at you standing next to the torch. Brilliant. I shall go and shine my light at my dog and just check that that's the case. Thanks, Dave. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris, Dave and Kat. We're going to be finding out about what happens to all the planets around a star when the star dies, goes through terminal explosion. That's coming up. And also what happens to stars over the course of their lifetime. That's coming up too. If you have a question for us, chris at thenakedscientist.com is our email address. Lifting the lab coats on the world's best science. The Naked Scientists. It is The Naked Scientists with Chris, Dave and Kat. Time to get experimental. Right, it's kitchen science time. Dave, you're brandishing a packet of spaghetti at me. Tell me what we're doing. Okay, this is possibly one of the simplest kitchen sciences we've ever done, so there's no excuse for not doing this at home. All you need to do is get a piece of spaghetti. You might want to do this a couple of times. You might want to have a couple of spare pieces of spaghetti. Take it, then hold it one finger each end, and then snap it. So, piece of dry spaghetti, dry spaghetti straight out of the packet, fingertips at each end, and then bend it and snap it. And then how many bits does it snap into? How many bits does it snap into? Kitchen science people, go. (laughs) <laughs> so take out your spaghetti, give it a bit of a snap, and how many pieces does it snap into? Is that, there is actually rhyme and reason behind this, don't it, it is quite an inter- some interesting physics behind it, but and it's a question which has um, challenged some of the biggest and best minds of phys- in physics from the last couple of hundred so years. So we're pitting the wits of the eastern region against this very thing. So have a go. Snap your spaghetti and count how many pieces. Tell us via email, chris at thenakedscientist.com. Uh, Jim is on the phone. Hello, Jim. Hello. I understand you're in Dallas. I certainly am. Well, it's good to have you with us all the way from the other side of the U.S. What can we do for you? All right. Uh, my question today is, I've recently developed an interest in astronomy, and I hope you can clear up what appears to be some contradictory explanations concerning the final phase in the life cycle of stars. Uh, different astronomers and, and astrophysicists that I've listened to have stated that stars end up as white dwarfs, neutron stars, pulsars, quasars, black holes, and in fact one uh, scientist even mentioned that some stars eventually contract into large diamonds. So that's quite a range of possibilities. So my question is, what does the final stage of a star's life look like? Are all of these possibilities, or is there one final state that all stars eventually reach? And if so, uh, what is that state? Very good question, Jim. Um, there's basically lots of different types of um, stars, and basically depends on how big the star was to start with. Um, if you've got a very small, st- if you've got something that's called a brown dwarf, that's a minute star, less than maybe eight percent of the mass of the sun. Um, it doesn't even it collapses, forms something a bit like a big Jupiter. It starts to warm up, but it doesn't even warm up enough to start fusion. It doesn't fuse any hydrogen. It just sits there and slowly cools down and ends up as a very cold planet. If you go slightly bigger, you get small stars, um, which um, the gas in them collapses. They heat up enough to start burning hydrogen. So the small stars, less than about half the mass of the sun. Um, they, they burn all their hydrogen, but they never get hot enough or dense enough to start burning helium. So they then cool down, and a star is basically just hot gas. It, the only thing which is supporting it under gravity is its temperature. So it slowly cools down and shrinks and shrinks and shrinks and forms this great big lump. 
of helium. It's a, a, white, a sort of helium white dwarf. Um, normal stars like the sun, um, they burn their hydrogen away, but then they've got enough mass to collapse down and they start burning um, the helium to form carbon. Um, and then it will burn away. And as it does that, the, um, the core of the star collapses. It gets very, very hot, and it sort of blows the outer layers of the, the star out to form a red giant. So you've got a very small core with a great big kind of diffuse, sort of warmish sort of red star outside it. And then this core, it's not massive enough to burn the carbon to form anything else. So then so the core, you get a bit of an explosion, blow away the, the outer layers. You end up with just a very, another cold sort of carbon um, core. Some of these, as they cool down, they can crystallise and form sort of diamond-type things. You get a bit bigger, then this white dwarf has got enough mass to collapse and form a neutron star, like I was talking about earlier, that explodes and form a huge supernova. And if you get even bigger than that, that's so massive that the neutron star will collapse to form a black hole from which nothing even light can escape from. Very comprehensive answer. Thank you very much, Dave, and I hope that sorts you out, Jim. And thank you for calling us from Dallas. Wonderful have, to have you with us, Kat. So it goes to show that size is everything uh, in astronomy. Anyway, now it's time to join Mira Senthalingham, who's been at the Science Museum in London this week to celebrate its 100th birthday. And to mark the occasion, as with all great parties, the museum has launched a special exhibition showcasing 10 iconic inventions from the history of science, such as Stevenson's rocket, the pilot ACE computer, uh, the Apollo 10 capsule and the DNA double helix. So Mira went along to find out more. 2009 marks 100 years since the opening of London Science Museum. So this week I've come down to the museum in Kensington for the launch of the centenary celebrations. Now to mark this special anniversary, the Science Museum is launching its Centenary Journey Trail, which identifies 10 scientific icons. And in addition to this trail, there's a public vote to identify the most significant object in the history of science. Today's event was launched by the Secretary of State for Business, Enterprise and Regulatory Reform, Lord Peter Mandelson. And here's what he had to say about the importance of science and the Science Museum in society today. The road from a late-night brainwave to scientific breakthrough, then commercial success, is a long, hard and rocky uh, road. Uh, but it does start with the thirst uh, for knowledge and a love for uh, innovation. And over the last hundred years, the Science Museum has helped feed uh, and nurture uh, that spirit for countless British innovators. It's helped explain and show the role of science in our lives uh, in all its glory. That was Lord Peter Mandelson discussing the importance of science in society today. Now, today's centenary celebrations were also launched by the museum's director, Chris Rapley. So, Chris, tell me a bit about the origins of the Science Museum. Well, we can trace our origins right back to the 1851 Great Exhibition, which was a celebration of Victorian industrial design and production. In fact, Prince Albert, uh, Queen Victoria's husband, was really the, one of the driving forces behind that. And it was hugely successful, something like the equivalent of about one-third of Britain's population at the time visited that exhibition. They had six million visitors in five months. And they set up a, an organisation called the South Kensington Museum. So that's what we trace our origins to. And what would you say the original kind of role of the Science Museum was? OK, well, it, what, what's really important, you, you always find historic champions. And the historic champions at the time were the astronomer Norman Lockyer in particular, who actually established Nature magazine, which is still, you know, the premier science magazine. And he and others saw uh, the science collection 
as hugely important to both the scientific, cultural and industrial benefit of the nation. And our view, of course, is, you know, plus ça change. It's exactly the same today. We're using those objects not just to engage people with something interesting, but hopefully to engage them with thinking about how they can change the future. Because ahead of us lie great challenges. Science and technology will play an enormous role in, in either solving those or not. And we want everybody to uh, play a part in that. Chris Rapley, director of the Science Museum, discussing the origins of the museum and the role it plays in inspiring science in society today. Now, two people showcasing some of the scientific icons on display here are John Liffens, the curator of communications, and Katie Mag, the curator of medicine. So, John, which icon are you representing? As curator of communications, it, I suppose I really have to go for the Cook and Wheatstone Five Needle Telegraph. This really represents the beginning of electrical communication. The world exists today on communication. For the last sort of 150 years, you know, it, it's been part of what's been making the world a smaller place. It all started back in London in 1837 with a demonstration of a simple device where with magnetic needles pointing to different letters, you could send a message over a distance. And Katie, you are here supporting the X-ray machine. So what makes this the most important icon? Well, X-rays have absolutely changed the way we uh, visualise and understand the world and our bodies. Before the discovery of X-rays, only surgeons could really sort of understand the, the mess inside of our bodies. It's revolutionised medical diagnosis, and also it's, it's changed science and the way we understand materials. We wouldn't even know about other icons on the list, such as the structure of DNA without X-ray crystallography. And also, unlike all the other icons, which have been made by um, adult scientists and expert engineers, this was made by a precocious 15 year old and his father just a matter of days they were inspired after they, they first heard about Röntgen's discovery and sort of when he was publishing it in 1896 I'm voting for it on behalf of all the sort of amateur scientists performing cutting-edge research at home. Katie Maggs and John Liffens both curators here at the Science Museum and now back to Chris Rapley. Chris why were these items chosen above so many other inventions in the history of science? Well, of course, um, we, we went through an exercise uh, here with our own staff saying, well, well, you know, what do you think had the biggest impact uh, on the last hundred years? So you can see why Stevenson's rocket, which completely transformed uh, expectation of transportation around the country, both of goods and people. Um, the Apollo 10 module, you know, the pinnacle uh, of, of human achievement in many ways, it's still marvellous that humans you know managed to send small numbers round the moon and indeed onto the surface of the moon penicillin how many people's lives have been changed uh, you know saved by penicillin so there are lots of different ways of looking at this but of course we're open to um, debate and discussion and if somebody listening to the program thinks no they got it wrong i think they should have chosen something else we'd be very happy to enter that debate you can look through the remaining icons chosen by the museum by visiting sciencemuseum.org.uk slash centenary. You can vote for your favourite or even suggest something you think they've missed. And uh, That was Mira St. Thillingham there talking to Katie Maggs, uh, Lord Peter Mandelson, Chris Rapley and John Liffin. Now, I personally think in the top ten there should be pasteurisation, DNA sequencing and the jet engine. How about do, you, Do you Chris? want the list? The list of they've got on there is steam engines, Stevenson's rocket, electric telegraph, X-ray machine, Model T Ford, penicillin, V2 rockets pilot ace computer the double helix and the apollo 10 capsule None so of mine, what, then. no they didn't pick on your one what about you dave what would you what would be on your icon list I, I think probably the biggest thing is probably the printing press because the only way science can keep on going forward is if you can learn from other people in the rest of the world what they've done and until the, you've got the printing press that's very very difficult well i sort of thought in the same vein and i thought um 
modern day impact on people, similar sort of idea, I went for the internet. I felt that everyone thinks a museum should have old things in it, but that's not necessarily the case. And the internet, I think, has been the greatest leveller and the biggest communications tool and the biggest uh, conduit for information that we've ever seen in the history of mankind. So I, I would definitely put that as an icon. I, I also had radio and the radar and, uh, and transistors, because without transistors we couldn't have an internet, we couldn't have computers, we couldn't have anything. So William Shockley's transistor I, I, I had on my list as well. <laughs> This is The Naked Scientist with Chris, Dave and Kat. We are answering your science questions. Time now to talk to someone who's actually in New Zealand. He's got up very early to talk to us. Hello, Charles. Hello. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. What can we do for you, apart from give you a strong coffee to wake you up? Oh, I can't think of a better reason to wake up. Um, my question is, it always seems that everything is quieter on a foggy night, and I'm wondering whether the moisture in the air has a dampening effect on sounds. It definitely does. Yeah, great question, Charles. The reason for that is that fog consists of tiny particles of water which are suspended as little blobs in the air down at ground level. And sound is a compression wave that travels through air. So when the compression wave goes through the air, it's making air molecules vibrate and they're passing those vibrations from one to the next like a handshake. And if you put water molecules into the air, it means that the water blobs can soak up, the droplets will soak up some of the vibrations and this will attenuate or damp down, quite literally, excuse the pun, the transmission of that sound through the air. So fog does have a sound attenuating effect and another reason why it might is that when it's foggy people tend to slow down too. So people don't go out as much, they don't play games as much, they don't drive as much and as a result you might see a reduction in the overall sound. But really good question and thank you for getting up so early to get in touch with us. Now Godfrey is in Atlanta and he's got a similar question for us but at the other end of the spectrum quite literally hello Godfrey hi how are you welcome to the naked scientists what would you like Thank to talk you. about uh, I had a question about what would happen if our solar system was in intergalactic space so for example instead of being in the Milky Way galaxy it would be out there by itself like in some place like the boots void and I wanted to know uh, would life still have been able to evolve? Does being a part of a galaxy provide any sort of protection? Is Or if our solar system was just an intergalactic space, would that be more dangerous for our solar system? I think if you manage to take, pick up on solar system and somehow magically transport it to the middle of intergalactic space, there might be slightly higher levels of really high energy intergalactic sort of cosmic rays um, because the, um, the galaxy does have a magnetic field which will shield us from very high energy um, um, cosmic rays slightly. But then again, a lot of cosmic rays are being made inside our galaxy, so it probably cancels out a bit. Um, I think the real thing is that you can't really get a solar system out into the middle of um, into a big void like that. It doesn't they don't get formed there because you need enough gas, a high density enough of gas to form stars, and there's just nothing out there. So the only way you get a star out there would be something really quite violent happening. So you'd need to have sort of three stars coming very close to each other and the other two dumping most of their energy into the third one and shooting it out of a galaxy or something. There is an errant star which is currently on its way out of the Milky Way, isn't there? It's, I think it's even left the Milky Way, or it's destined to in the next, I think in, in, in literally in hundreds of thousands or a few thousand years, it's actually going to completely leave the galaxy. And, and it was exactly as you said, it was part of a binary system where the two were twirling around each other near to the central black hole. And they got very, very rapidly accelerated. And it was a sort of slingshot where 
one spun away and the other one got chucked into potentially on a trajectory to intergalactic space. Yeah, um, and if it's done that, you're going to rip off all the, the planets are going to get ripped off and hurled somewhere entirely different. They might also end up in intergalactic space, probably nowhere near the original star. So life, life as we knew it on those sorts of planets, yeah. that would be curtains, wouldn't it? And also, and you couldn't form a star which could support life as we know it in even along out of side a galaxy because we're dependent on heavy elements, um, a lot heavier than iron, a, a big hel- and those are all formed in supernovae, which was talking about earlier. So you'd only get sort of hydrogen, helium, and you can't really make a planet out of hydrogen, helium, and a little bit of lithium. Um, so uh, although I think you could probably sustain a um, life out there, I can't see any way of achieving it. Thank you, Dave. And thank you very much, Godfrey, for a fantastic question. That was Godfrey, who's listening to us via the podcast in the States. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, Dave Ansell, and with Kat Arney. If you have any science questions for us, it's chris at thenakedscientist.com. Right, it's time to go back to our kitchen science, where Dave and I have some spaghetti. So as we said earlier, the aim with the spaghetti is to grip it at each end of a piece of uncooked spaghetti, bend it, and see what happens. Let's go for it. Let's do it. Ah. A couple more. Okay, Okay. We seem to be breaking the laws of physics as we break our spaghetti. What's meant to be happening? Well, most sometimes it will snap yeah. in two, but mostly what happens is they tend to snap into more than two. You just got one. So yeah, I'm, I'm ones I'm snapping get into three yeah, or four. Yours are going, yeah, loads. Hold the two ends quite firmly and two bend. Two ends quite firmly, bend. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, so these are snapping into four or five pieces, which isn't what you'd normally expect. When you'd expect you it just it. to snap in half, wouldn't you, if you bend something like that? Yeah, this is a really interesting problem, and um, it's actually um, confused one of the greatest um, physicists of the 20th century, um, Richard Feynman, who spent ages sitting in his um, kitchen snapping bits of spaghetti, apparently, and it didn't really quite work out what's going on. Um, but some French guys worked this out recently. Uh, one of the things which is going on is if you take something like a ruler... OK, we've got a, a shatter-resistant ruler, I hope, here. <laughs> and if, if you bend it... Bending the ruler. And you let go... <laughs> It jumps up into the air. That's because when you bend a ruler and let go, it tries to get longer. The table's in the way, so it pushes down against the table. Uh, equal, equal opposite reaction. It so it gets, pushes it upwards, so it pushes upwards. So if you, get a, if you imagine a piece of spaghetti, when it's just broken, the end's released, it straightens out, it tries to get a bit longer, and that pushes back on the rest of the bent spaghetti as... And so the rest of the bent spaghetti gets pushed backwards and gets slightly t- more tight um, curvature. That slightly more tight curvature means that it can't cope anymore. It's, it was almost on the edge of breaking already, and it snaps. And so it snaps in a second place. And so, that's, so you should always get three bits. And sometimes that second snapping um, can trigger a third or a fourth snap. And but so three is the magic three, number. Three. Really. Sometimes, I think if you don't quite hold the ends tightly, you can, as Cat proved, you can snap into two. But it's very well, hard. Just because James in Cambridge got in touch, he's had a go, and he says he got three pieces consistently, although um, on one occasion did get four. So that would sort yeah. of fit with, with what you said. I wonder if it depends on the quality of your spaghetti, because we're using some Sainsbury's <laughs> economy spaghetti. And I wonder if you it's had... of course, very high quality spaghetti, um, and better. if you use... Other spaghettis or from other supermarkets, like Waitrose, from Marks and Spencers, uh, Tesco's. Vendors, you if, might if, you do, if you do have a very, if you have a, uh, have a really big weakness somewhere and it snaps on that, then it's not going to, it's not going to be broke, bent enough to snap in other places. But it generally it does. Well, thank you guys, and I'm pleased that we had something that was suitably challenging for our mental capacity this week <laughs> on the Naked Scientist. Keep your questions coming in, of course. Chris at thenakedscientist.com. Bringing the facts to bear. The Naked Scientists. 
Now, Kat, got a question here from John Gamel, uh, who says, how is caffeine extracted from whole coffee beans? I have to say, until he raised the question, I hadn't even considered it, but it's a very good question. It is. I'm a decaf coffee drinker. I am caffeine-free, so uh, this actually intrigued me as well. And in fact, there's a number of different ways that uh, people get the caffeine out of coffee, and they do do it on the whole beans. It's not that you brew up loads of coffee and then take the caffeine out of it. You decaffeinate the beans before they're even roasted, because that helps to preserve as much flavour as possible when they're finely roasted and then ground up. So there's a number of ways you can do it. You can do it the nasty way, which is to bung a load of solvents in there because um, caffeine dissolves in certain solvents. Um, Some of the ones kind of slightly related to things like dry cleaning fluid not very nice uh, way of treating your coffee so people try and develop other ways of doing it that involve things like water you can basically just try and wash the caffeine out and then by washing your beans and then filter out the caffeine there's another really clever way that people do it is by washing the coffee beans with a very very strong solution of coffee uh, that's sort of saturated with all the coffee flavour molecules, but, presumably decaf but not the caffeine. Right. So basically, it's uh, using, I guess it's osmosis, isn't it? Sort of. Um, diffusion, where well, it's the a one, diffusion yeah. gradient, isn't it? Because exactly. if there's no caffeine in, in the solution and there's lots of caffeine in the bean, there'll be a yeah. sort of net movement into exactly. the Exactly. The, co- the caffeine goes out the beans into this coffee-flavoured solution, but you don't lose any of the flavour from the beans because there's already loads of these flavour molecules in the water, so they don't want to move out of the beans. Uh, and there's another way of doing it using um, carbon dioxide as well, high-pressure carbon dioxide, which kind of forces the caffeine out without losing the flavour. So that is apparently how they do it. Terrific. Thank you, Kat. Uh, Tracy got in touch uh, with respect to the Science Museum's icons, and she says, what about the contraceptive pill? Because that's had a huge impact in terms of effectively saving life, hasn't it? Effective contraception. So good thought there. Mark in Belfast says, uh, hi, guys, I love your show. And when I play poker and I get a good hand, I find it very hard to control my feelings. My heartbeat goes up and a vein in my neck starts to pulsate. My friend says, this is really easy to pick up on. Can you tell me what's happening and why? How can I stop it? Well, the answer is mark that this is your sympathetic nervous system we have two arms to our autonomic nervous system the thing that controls our um, unconscious bodily systems we have the sympathetic nervous system which you activate when you need to fight or or when you undergo flight you want to run away and you have the parasympathetic nervous system when you rest and digest things well when you get excited your sympathetic nervous system turns on this makes your pupils big it makes your heart rate go up your blood pressure goes up you start sweating you also might get slightly trembly and as a result you give yourself away because you're obviously getting excited. So trained people know how to slightly damp down that reflex so that they don't actually display those innermost feelings. So it's a question actually of probably self-control and training yourself not to get too excited. Now, Kat, got a very quick question. You've got about a minute to answer this, OK? This is from Peter Morris, who says, I love your show. He's actually listening in Adelaide in Australia, and he says, are humans now de-evolving? And what he means by that is if we keep giving people caesarean sections to help get babies out, does this mean that we're evolving so that women get narrower and narrower pelvises so that in the future they won't be able to have babies normally? It's an interesting one. I mean, there's no such term really as de-evolving because we're all constantly evolving. Our humans are changing in result of uh, environmental pressures that are on us. I guess over many, many, many thousands of years, if we do carry on medicalising humans so that we don't die of conditions caused by our biology, then we might evolve to kind of get round them. Um, for example, I'm not sure about if there is evidence that our appendixes are vanishing gradually uh, or not. But because they, that's a common cause of illness. But I, uh, I don't know. I don't think we've really had enough time to tell how the impact of modern medicine, which has only been around for about 100 years or so, is actually affecting our evolution. 
undoubtedly there will be an effect because, of course, fewer people will die who would have died otherwise. So evolution may run more slowly. It may be that we evolve in a different way. One mm. of the pressures has been removed, but there are new pressures. We have to com- compensate for the fact exactly. that we take less exercise. Um, actually, we eat more and we eat a diet that perhaps is probably not as good for us. Constant. We're constantly evolving, but yeah, it'd be interesting to see how it goes. Thank you for that, Kat. Now it's time for this week's Question of the Week with Diana O'Carroll. This week, is the Earth raining outwards? Hi, this is Nigel. And I've always wondered, is the Earth leaking? Could water evaporate into space? And given enough time, could the Earth end up like Mars, a desolate wasteland with not a drop of water to be found? So what is keeping all the water in, if anything? I'm uh, Luca Montabone, and I'm a planetary scientist at the Open University. On the Earth, water can exist in all three forms, namely as a solid, liquid or gas. Evaporation transforms liquid water into water vapor, which can then freely move in the atmosphere as a gas. Now, atmospheric molecules, including water vapor molecules, are in perpetual motion in all directions. Without the gravitational field of the Earth, those moving away from the planet would be lost. Even with the gravitational field, in the upper, thin part of the atmosphere, a molecule moving outwards has little chance of colliding with another and would therefore be able to escape if it has sufficient speed. The average speed of a gas, for example water vapor, depends on its temperature. The conditions of temperature at the altitude from which water molecules are able to escape indicate that the Earth can retain water vapor over geological timescales, that is, over several billion years. The retention of water vapor on our planet is also favored by the fact that it can condense, form clouds at an altitude well below the one from which water molecules can escape, and precipitate back to the ground as rain or snow. Adding to all these, we have to remember that water is also introduced in the hydrological cycle from the interior of the planet. For example, every time that a volcanic eruption occurs. So, to summarize, even if a few water molecules are continuously lost to space, the average level remains fairly constant over geological times, which is what we want. There is a little bit in the way of Earth water escapology, but it only happens when the water molecules have enough energy to escape the Earth's gravitational pull. Even so, there's enough water being released from the Earth's crust that for a few million years we should be okay. And on our forum, Madidas Scientia noted that icy comets are always adding to our watery equilibrium. Given that we have enough water, it's time to do some laundry. Hello, I'm Russell from Great Chisel, and I would like to know why do washing powders remove stains but not dyes? What's so special about washing powder that makes it target chocolate instead of blue dye number six? Let us know on our forum at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. Alternatively, you can email us. The address is chris at thenakedscientists.com. That's Diana O'Carroll with this week's Question of the Week. She'll be back next time. But in the meantime, if you would like to catch up with more editions of Question of the Week, you can find them as a separate podcast, both on our website and on iTunes. NakedScientist.com forward slash QOTW is the web address. And as Diana says, please do consider that question this week and send it in to us if you think you know the answer. Chris at thenakedscientists.com. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. It remains for me to say a very big thank you to our production team, Diana O'Carroll, Ben Valsler and Mira Senthalingam. And next week, we're looking at the science of farming of the future, including a very clever system that will take seawater, it will generate wonderful amounts of fresh water and grow your five-a-day fruit and vegetables for you. How does it all work? 
And what else has farming of the future got in store for us? Find out on next week's Naked Scientists. Have a good week, take care and goodbye. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.